We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right into the this program is a true story that you probably have never heard before, and what a story it is. In 1940, after Hitler had invaded Poland and England and France had declared war on Germany, England and France were about to enter into war with Russia. Given that there was no difference that mattered between how evil Nazi Germany was and how evil communist Russia was, this would have made a lot of sense. What they were planning would have drastically altered the course of World War II. Now, pull up a chair or just keep driving around for the next hour and I'll tell you exactly how this almost happened. Think war in the Ukraine how that got so many people really stirred up and angry at Vladimir Putin and his invasion. Once you've got yourself in that space, let me tell you about when Russia invaded another little country on its border. This time it was Finland in 1939. Russia and Nazi Germany agreed to split up Poland. In fact, Nazi Germany and Russia had agreed to divide a lot of Europe between themselves. Both dictatorships invaded the same number of countries. Hitler invaded Poland, Denmark, Norway, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Belgium and France, at the end of which England was standing alone in Europe against Hitler. But in that same time, Stalin had invaded Japanese or Chinese, depending on your point of view, Manchuria, Poland, Finland, Lithuania, Estonia, and Romania. Overall, Stalin had managed to keep his head down and not to attract the attention of the Western powers. Not too much. Probably for France, England, and America, most of those countries that Russia interfered with were a long way from where they were. When Hitler was monstering Czechoslovakia in 1938, Chamberlain had said in a radio broadcast to the English people that what was happening there between Hitler and Czechoslovakia involved a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. I think the same applied to all of the countries Stalin bullied, except for Finland. Finland is a country most people don't know much about, but it's right next to Sweden and Norway, and it probably felt a lot more familiar than those countries in remote Central Europe. Finland was invaded by Russia on 30 November 1939. Like Ukraine, Finland, which looked like it would be a walkover for the massive Red Army, fought like a tiger, and the Russians, instead of a quick victory, found themselves suffering horrific casualties, getting nowhere and getting most of the world offside to boot. Even the Germans were upset about the war, although they'd okayed it. 
Feelings about giant Russia invading tiny Finland reached such a fever pitch that both England and France decided to go to war with Russia. They were already at war with Germany, but since the fall of Poland in 1939, nothing had happened on the border between Germany and France. It was called the Phony War. Maybe they thought that war would just fizzle out. The prospect of getting involved in a war with Russia was something England and France were more enthusiastic about than going head-on with Germany. On 6 January 1940, the British War Cabinet discussed bombing the Russian oil fields in the Caucasus. Further discussions on 30 January firmed up the British ideas about getting involved in Finland and bombing the Russian oil fields. On 5 February 1940, the Anglo-French Supreme War Council met in Paris. The British and French had different ideas about how to fight Russia through Scandinavia. The French wanted to land a force of 50,000 troops at Petsamo, an important town with mines producing nickel, an essential war product for German tank manufacturing. But that was too close to Russia... Churchill and the Royal Navy weren't keen to get into a fight in confined waters so close to Russia. The Russian oil fields in the Caucasus, on the other hand, were a much more vulnerable target and well away from the main Russian strength. On 5 March 1940, Field Marshal Edmund Ironside, a name to remember, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, had a conference with his subordinate officers. He told the meeting that the British War Cabinet wanted to force a war on Russia, even though he felt that the British weren't ready for it. And he was definitely right. Apart from talk of sending divisions to and through Norway as a way to reach the Finns, the outstanding idea, because it involved minimal forces and the least risk, was to bomb the Russian oil fields in the Caucasus. The British plan was to bomb the oil fields near the town of Baku, sometime in April 1940. It was expected that if bombing sorties were carried out twice a week from air bases in Iraq by two squadrons of Blenheim bombers, that was just 24 aircraft, it would take about 5 to 12 weeks to knock out the major Russian oil installations, pipelines and refineries in Baku. They also considered attacking Batumi. Detailed information about these targets was missing though. Sometime before March 1940, the Vost, that's the Russian equivalent of the German term Zofiar, which was the name used for Stalin by his close associates, had inquiries for technical help on a matter of great importance made at the US Embassy in Moscow. America was neutral. America was also the leading oil producer and expert in all technical matters on oil. What the Vost wanted to know was, what would happen to Russian oil production if the Allies, France and or Britain, bombed the Russian oil fields at Baku? And what would the consequences of that bombing be? Stalin had impeccable intelligence on what was happening in Western countries. It looks suspiciously like Stalin's inquiry was no coincidence and had been prompted by leaks from Whitehall and Paris about the British and French actually planning and intending to carry out such an attack. The answer Stalin got from the Americans on 3 March wasn't very comforting. The American advice was something like this. Since the whole district is simply saturated in oil, 
There would be a blaze unequaled in the history of the world. The damage would probably take many, many years to repair. In other words, such a raid would have a catastrophic consequence, not just for Russia, but also for Nazi Germany, which was then getting most of its oil from Russia. It's not clear just how much the British and the French knew about what would happen at Baku if such an attack was carried out, but the Americans revealed what they had told the Russians to the Turks, who in turn leaked the story to the French ambassador in Ankara, René Masigli. The US ambassador in Moscow, Lawrence Steinhardt, who delivered the report on the consequences of an aerial attack on the Caucasian oil fields, warned the British ambassador, Stalin is hypnotized by the bogey of Allied intervention in the Caucasus while he is still entangled in Finland. Driven by this fear, Stalin now made two decisions that would have lasting repercussions, even down to this day and beyond. By early March 1940, Britain, France, Italy and Spain were ready to go to war with Russia by sending troops to fight alongside the Finns. Hungary, Turkey, Iraq, Iran and Afghanistan were also about to do the same. Neutral USA declared a moral embargo on strategic imports to Stalin and money was being raised privately in the United States and being discussed officially in the American Congress to provide financial assistance to Finland to buy arms. Stalin, the most dangerous man to have ever stalked the earth, well, perhaps apart from Mao Zedong as a close runner-up, was also an amazingly astute politician, which is why Stalin had survived for so long. On 12 March 1940, he signed a peace agreement with Finland. It was a very generous peace deal. Russia had increased massively. The troops that it had deployed against Finland and exhaustion was now beginning to show as the Finns reached the end of their strength. The peace treaty immediately diffused most of the coalition that was growing against Russia. But disturbingly for Stalin, the bureaucratic wheels for the British and French air attacks on the Russian oil fields kept humming along. Stalin had to protect his back, and the man who had Stalin's back was the head of the communist secret police, Lavrenti Beria. Beria did a study of Polish aristocrats, top bureaucrats, and senior military officers, and reported that every one of these Poles is just waiting to be liberated in order to be allowed to actively participate in the battle against Soviet power, who were carrying on even in prison with anti-Soviet agitation and counter-revolutionary work. They are lethal enemies of Soviet power. Beria's recommendation in Soviet speak was that 25,700 Polish officers and elites be re-arrested and subjected to the highest measure of punishment, execution. Large numbers of Polish soldiers who had escaped to England and France after the fall of Poland were in training and were available to be deployed for possible operations in France against Germany or Finland or Transcaucasia against Russia. France had been actively advocating for them to be used against Russia. This made these politically dangerous Polish prisoners, as Stalin saw them, who were located in various camps, 
a priority to deal with. Now, they were rounded up and shipped to places where they could be exterminated. Elaborate measures were taken to ensure that the relocation of these poles did not arouse their suspicions. They were shipped in batches of a few hundred at a time. At the camp at Ostashkov, the Polish prisoners on leaving were taken away with a band apparently saluting them, playing them for them as they left. It seems that not one of the prisoners suspected the fate that awaited them at the end of their journey. Now, it was typical of the Germans who would go on to build elaborate gas chambers and death camps where they would execute Jews and other undesirables and crematoria to dispose of their bodies. The Russians were far more basic and practical in their methods. One by one, these Polish prisoners were taken to soundproof cells where they were dispatched by a bullet to the back of the head. Most of the bodies were then transported to an area 20 kilometres west of Smolensk, which came to be known after the, one of the forests there, the Katyn Forest, where the Germans in 1943 uncovered their mass graves. Stalin's trusted NKVD butcher, Wassily Blokin, oversaw a team of 50 NKVD men who shot hundreds of Poles each day. By the end of the slaughter, 21,892 Poles had been killed in April 1940. 15,000 officers, 5,000 policemen and nearly 2,000 government officials and business leaders. There was no gender equality in this butchery as only one of the victims was a woman. 8% of those murdered were Jews, relieving the Nazis of that task in the next few months after they invaded Russia. The wives and children of the executed Poles were all tracked down, 60,667 in all, and they were forcibly shipped to labour camps in Kazakhstan in Russia. The blame for the Katyn massacre can't, of course, be laid at the feet of the English and the French, but there seems to be good reason for believing that their proposal to attack Russia in Finland or Transcaucasia triggered Stalin into this brutal action as a form of self-defence. Mass murder was not something that Stalin ever had to struggle with his conscience over. And so it was that in the first half of the 20th century, we were all welcomed to the world that John Lennon had only imagined, but Stalin had gotten there first. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. In fact, as John Lennon's song points out, that on his worldview, there was no reason against doing anything at all. As Dostoevsky said in The Brothers Karamazov, if God doesn't exist, everything is permitted. The political scene in England and France, even though Russia was now no longer at war with Finland, was still such that there was pressure on the country's leaders to do something about Stalin over what he had done to Finland. To give an illustration, French Premier Édouard Daladier's government had fallen at the elections on 21 March 1940, in large part because of his government's failure to do anything to help Finland. The government in England was not exempt from the same pressure. On 19 March 1940, Neville Chamberlain was grilled by the House of Commons in a seven-hour session over what the government's response to Finland had been. Chamberlain resolved to be more vigorous in challenging Stalin going forward. Ironically, it was in the weeks 
after Russia had entered into a peace treaty with Finland, that England and France finally came closest to going to war with Russia. The plans for bombing the Russian oil installations at Baku were agreed in Paris at the Supreme War Council meeting on 28 March. While Beria was organising the shooting of 21,892 Polish leaders, the British Air Ministry finally took the first material steps in getting their air offensive against the Russians ready. A daredevil pilot by the name of Hugh MacPhail was given the job of conducting an aerial surveillance of the Russian oil fields at Baku and Batumi. His first mission was to Batu. He took off from a British airfield in Iraq, flying a Lockheed 14 Super Electra. By way of a side note, this was a later model of the plane that appears at the end of the movie Casablanca, when Ilsa Lund, Ingrid Bergman, and her husband Victor Laszlo, partisan leader Paul Heinrich, escape using the passes from two murdered German couriers that Ugarde, Peter Lorre, had come into possession of. MacPhail's plane was named Cloudy Joe. MacPhail and his co-pilot wore civilian clothes and carried civilian passports in case they were captured or killed. The plane, in service with the Royal Air Force, had its military markings removed and was made to resemble a civilian airliner. Cloudy Joe flew into Russian airspace at about 11.45am on 30 March 1940. Amazingly, it circled over Baku for more than an hour, the photographer responsible for capturing images that would be needed for the intelligence people to evaluate the target and how best to attack it was Alan Tubby Dixon. Aerial photo reconnaissance would advance enormously during World War II, but not at this time. It was still very basic. Tubby dangled himself very courageously through an emergency panel in the plane's floorboard to get his pictures of the oil facilities. The Russian air defences were luckily only minimal at Baku and posed no great danger for this leisurely and completely unavoidably obvious photo recon mission. The photos, when studied, suggested that because the oil derricks were only 64 metres apart, incendiary bombs could easily ignite a general conflagration of the entire petrol-saturated area. This was so encouraging that the Royal Air Force doubled the force that they were going to use to wipe out this target. They sent another four squadrons, 48 Blenheim Mark IV bombers, to reinforce Britain's Middle East command in Iraq. MacPhail and his crew flew their next mission over the other target, the Batumu oil fields, on 5 April 1940. The Russian air defences were now much more alert. Three salvos of anti-aircraft fire whizzed past Cloudy Joe, happily missing. It's tempting to think that if the British had gone ahead with the attacks on the oil fields on 15 May 1940, the armies of Adolf Hitler and Stalin might have ground to a halt for want of petrol. But on 10 May 1940, the phony war in continental Europe came to a shattering end with the Germans opening their attacks on France, Luxembourg, Belgium and Holland. These attacks were carried out in an unprecedented way, taking everyone, including Adolf Hitler, by surprise. The tactic came to be known as Blitzkrieg, and it had been invented jointly between General von Manstein 
and General Heinz Guderian. The one thing that this clearly showed was that England and France were completely taken surprise by the German attack in the West. Their plans for attacking Russia ground to a sudden halt and now were never to happen. Soon, England and France would find themselves as allies to Russia in the strangest circumstances imaginable. Communism had perhaps succeeded in dodging a bullet to its brain that the thousands of bullets to the brains of Poland's leaders were not able to dodge. The consequences of this failure to carry out this attack for the world were going to be horrific, but that story is for another program. America was soon going to be dragged into the war in Europe, helping Russia in the most unexpected ways in what turned out to be a war that America was going to fight, which Hamilton Fish III, a congressman from western New York, described as being a war that American mothers would not have had their country enter into, a war to make the world safe for communism. But let me tell you how that amazing thing happened beginning in my next program. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday mornings starting at 10.30am. Probably the best world's guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Carlsberg slogan for their beer. If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, about, well, I'm not sure, you just have to listen to it.